Guys, clock is ticking on our April 18th Apprenticeship Indicator Georgia. Make sure you guys check it out now. There's tons of opportunities to save money. If you are interested in what the apprenticeship is, we've talked about this a lot. Simply put, it is a two-day seminar completely focused on interpersonal skills development. It is a non-death by PowerPoint, highly interactive seminar where you have the chance to really get evaluated by peers and professionals in other fields and become better at both the verbal, nonverbal elements of what you do. Whether you lead big groups, small groups, whether you're a mom, whether you work at a mothership of some major company, whatever, we all need to get better at communication. These apprenticeships are the things that I've worked so uh, the hardest on in the past two years. Uh, they give me a lot of gray hairs. These things are a lot of fun, though, too. I'm constantly exposed as a communicator. Other people are exposed, but you know what? It's fine because it's a safe place for leaders to truly grow. Haven't you had enough of these five steps to successful leadership and, you know, three ways to build rapport? Don't you want something more tactical? If you do and you really want to dive into power dynamics and uh, sometimes the really sticky parts of communication and how it can hamper what we do, check out The Apprenticeship. We have one in April 18th, Indicator. We also have one in Chicago, Illinois on May 2nd. And then we have Sydney, Australia, May 9th. Perth, Australia, May 16th. And then I'm finally going out to visit my friend Luca Hosevar in Renton, Washington on Saturday, June 13th. You can find all of these at artofcoaching.com backslash events. Again, that's artofcoaching.com backslash events. Now, on to my good friend, Justin. Enjoy, guys. Welcome to the Art of Coaching Podcast, a show aimed at getting to the core of what it takes to change attitudes, behaviors, and outcomes in the weight room, boardroom, classroom, and everywhere in between. I'm your host, Brett Bartholomew. I'm a performance coach, keynote speaker, and the author of the book, Conscious Coaching. But most importantly, I'm a lifelong student interested in all aspects of human behavior and communication. I want to thank you for joining me. And now let's dive into today's episode. Everybody, I'm so glad that you could join us on today's episode. I think we have uh, what's easily going to be one of the most popular episodes just because of the uniqueness of the conversation, the uniqueness of the individual involved, and just the candid nature of the information he's going to share. I am here with Justin Bosley. Justin, what's going on, buddy? Oh, man, not much. Uh, just getting some coffee, getting the day started here. To chat. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Guys, to give you context, and, and Justin's got such a unique story, so I am going to let him go into it a little bit more. But the, the need for the now is that Justin is an emergency physician and sports medicine physician, and he has a truly unique path. I mean, you're talking about somebody that, uh, you know, graduated from, Justin, if I remember correctly, Harvard University in 2003, University School of Medicine, uh, Utah. I mean, you've done so much schooling, but the most important and critical thing I hope the audience takes away from this is just the nature of the environment in which you work, the criticality of the decision-making when you're talking about emergency physicians and sports medicine. And, you know, just to give the audience, you guys context, one of the reasons I, I want to talk to Justin and you'll learn real quick within five minutes of him speaking is we have a lot of different professionals on this podcast. And that's simply because when you're dealing in high stakes environments, when you're trying to help people achieve optimal performance, whether it's the boardroom, the weight room, the locker room, the classroom, these things all 
include a combination of improv, game theory, and really just persuasion and influence. We've got to adapt under constraints. We have got to make sure that we can make critical decisions under uncertainty. And then we've got to change people's behaviors through a combination of emotional appeals and information. And I just think that we've had a lot of perspectives on this show, but none quite like Justin in terms of emergency physician and sports med. So Justin, I'd love for you to bridge the gap there, kind of talk about, as you put it, your wonky path and all that, and, and give us a little bit more insight on your journey, please. Oh man. Uh, well, I'm, I'm awesome intro. Um, Brett, you've said it so many things there that are so uh, rich and nuanced. And I think it suggests the level of thought you've put into the complexity of some of these work environments. Um, um, I tell people my job, simply put, is, in the emergency department, I should say, is to treat emergencies perceived and actual. Um, uh, the emergency department is a place where people arrive with uncertainty. Uh, they present with symptoms, not with diagnoses. They present with questions, not answers. I mean, occasionally it's not subtle, right? Someone rolls in and there's a bone sticking out of skin where it shouldn't be. And it's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a diagnostic dilemma, what's going on. Um, uh, the objective there is to meet the person in the kind of the acute physical and emotional state that they're in and try to improve all domains of their existence. It's not just about treating pain. It's about treating the fear. It's about kind of and providing anticipatory guidance for what's going to come down the road, but um, th those are the those are the easy situations because you know what's happening. Um, the the strangest thing about working in medicine, um, and I think this is probably what drew me to medicine, which is what do you do to help somebody when you have no idea what's going on? Right. When when you can't say why something hurts, why something feels bad, why there's a profound fatigue. Um, when all of our available diagnostic testing, whether it's uh, blood work, whether it's imaging, uh, x-ray, CT, MRI, ultrasound, or even some of the more esoteric testing that's available, when all that stuff comes back as quote-unquote normal, which I usually tell people just means non-diagnostic, because if you tell somebody everything's normal but they still feel bad, then people feel like they're crazy. Right. And, and that, and that, and that, um, that, that, that disassociates people from, from the, the medical path. And that's when people start looking for even stranger explanations or causes. Um, and, and so, so the job is what do you do with people when you don't know what to do with people and how do you engage with people, uh, in that period of uncomfortable uncertainty? Um, and how do you create a concept of comfortable uncertainty? How do you partner with somebody as you go through a journey of trying to figure out what to do, even if you don't know why it's happening? Um, that's really, really vague. So let me give you an example here. Um, it's not uncommon for people to roll into the emergency department with um, um, a vague sensation of chest discomfort. And if, if you're over a certain age and you tell somebody you, you, you have some chest discomfort, um, they're going to say, oh my gosh, you better get it checked out to make sure it's not a heart attack. It's just this default, um, Heuristic. default reaction. Yeah, heuristic. We we jokingly call it the med school parrot. Because <laughs> when you're in med school and you're learning all these things, you just have to cram this knowledge into your brain. So if somebody says one thing, you say another. And if someone says poly, you say want a cracker. <laughs> um, and uh, there are just these, there are these medical heuristics that we have. An example is a, a young person with head trauma, uh, whether it's from a fall or an impact of some kind, who loses consciousness briefly, wakes back up, and then starts to get a little bit altered and maybe loses consciousness again. Uh, we call that the uh, the lucid interval, and um, that's just uh, it's just a 
uh, medical heuristic for a uh, for a traumatic injury of the uh, the meningeal artery, and it can create the subdural hematoma. And uh, it's just a it's medical heuristic that you just get you just get drilled in. And it's amazing these neurons that you that we have in our body. We all have these these memories of like you were sick when you were in grade seven. And it was, it, you got a virus, but it kicked in right after you ate mom's meatloaf or something. And so ever since that day, like if you think about meatloaf, your body just deeply, innately remembers this feeling of being unwell. And you just don't like meatloaf because you attach it to this, 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 this remote sensation. So there's like one neuron in your body that holds on to that memory and that neuron's with you. And, and so if you can train these neurons well, um, they're there to serve you, even if in these moments of like remote access. But, um, but, uh, <laughs> that's so essential to train well, right? Because if that neuron's there and it's just a little bit miswired, you kind of made the wrong association. Having to, 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 to relearn those heuristics, gosh, that's the hard work. That's really, really hard. Um, anyway, I touched randomly on a few different things there, but all that to say is like working with people in periods of uncertainty, how do you accompany them? How do you improve their physical well-being? How do you support their emotional well-being? Um, how do you put them in the right kind of uh, social context so they don't feel like they're an invalid, they're not crazy, that everybody around them is feeling fine, has no pain, isn't stressed out, and they're the only one that's got their life in a total mess. Um, and how do you do that in the moment of presentation in the emergency department where just, you're not going to meet this person again necessarily? Um, so how do you quickly, how do you listen to them? How do you kind of do a, a quick um, fix slice of who they are and what's going on in their life? And then how do you pick up on the subtle cues that they're providing that you can then intervene in the most meaningful way in the time that you have. Um, that's a very philosophical approach. Other reasons I love my job, I get to do things with my hands. Someone comes in with a cut, I get to sew it up. I get to make it better. Somebody comes in with a broken bone, I can help reset it, uh, get it into a position of less pain so it can actually heal, potentially with the chance of avoiding a surgery. That's always kind of the, the satisfying personal goal. Sure. Like if you can reset a bone and it doesn't need surgery, damn, you did a good job. Um, and then, uh, and then if you can just kind of speed someone's course through a diagnostic dilemma, they came in with symptoms, you can make a diagnosis, you can intervene quickly, you can get them on the path of recovery rapidly. Um, um, well, just pick, picking up right there, Juan, picking up right there, Justin, I, lo yeah. I love what you said. You, you, you've given us a treasure trove of jump off points. What I want to highlight is that one of the very first things you said, if I heard you correctly, is, you know, you are dealing if it, when it, it, in situations where the emergencies are both perceived and actual. Now let's talk about this for a moment, okay? And we have a wide listenership. So for somebody in sports performance, right? Like we know this with an athlete, maybe they get carted off the field. You know, they swear they felt something pop or somebody saw something twist a certain way. Or like you said, somebody's maybe web MD'd themselves. So they come in with symptoms, um, but it's yeah. not a true diagnosis. When you're dealing with perception, because that is such a powerful topic that we talk about both in leadership, skilled interpersonal communication, and coaching, which, you know, I consider coaching leadership. You're a coach. Anybody that deals with people in an orchestrated effort to help them overcome an obstacle as a coach, talk to me about, let's just start here. Talk to me about perception and that first moment when somebody comes in and they swear something is X, you're trying to do diagnostics to figure out if it's Y. And then there's that space in between where nobody really knows. Because even the data, as you alluded to, even the data can fail us when something comes back as normal. And it, it like normal is super vague. There is no average. There is no normal. It just means we don't know yet. So talk to me about right. that emotional uh, plex, that emotional nexus of like, holy shit, 
I swear something's wrong. I'm super emotional. I'm looking to you for guidance. How do we handle that moment? Mm. It's Great okay training. to take a second. Yeah, it's okay because I know yeah. this is unscripted and that's a lot. And, and just take yeah. it one piece at a time. Don't feel like you got to do a stream of consciousness. Just like, what's the first thing somebody can do when dealing with an emergency situation to help yeah. assuage the fears and the perceptions of somebody else going through that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's essential to, to do two things up front. Number one is frame and number one is validate. And now you're not trying to validate, um, and I'll do that one first. You're not trying to validate every element of the person's, um, experience as if it's true. You just need to validate it to say like what you're experiencing now is real. You are experiencing anxiety and fear. That's a real phenomenon in your body now. You're not crazy because if I was in your shoes, I would be afraid of the same thing. I would be feeling anxious if I didn't know what was going on as well. So you got to validate it. So you got to meet that person where they are because only then will they be able to listen to you. Right. Otherwise, they're just going to be stuck in that infinity loop of fear and anxiety in their own brain. Yep. If you don't tell them that you can like, you see it, you hear it, and now let's park it on the shelf for a second so we can talk about what we got to do and what might happen next, they're just going to be stuck in that, in that trap. And so you got to open their ears by by opening yours you gotta you gotta listen to them so that they'll start to listen to you um so that's that that's that validation bit and then the framing bit is essential you say like i know you're hyper focused on x you're afraid you just tore your acl um you're afraid that um you're not going to be available for whatever your your season objective is um two or three months from now you're afraid that this is going to set back your your progress that's real concern that's real concern okay that's our timeline Here's what's going to happen in the next one hour. Here's going to have, uh, be what's happening in the next four hours. Here's how the next two weeks might go, depending on what we learn in that next one to four hours. Um, and here's what might happen over the next two or three months, depending on each of these potential pathways. So you can kind of orient them away from these catastrophic, long-term theoretical issues um, towards some objective, um, objective tasks that you can accomplish together in the next few hours. It's, it's, it's crucial to, to, to frame things for people. Because once you give them something they can do as, as opposed to something they can worry about, people are generally going to um, start to identify with or identify is not the right word there. They're going to start to focus and act towards the thing they can do. Right. Um, true for all of us. We all have our irrational concerns that um, capture us and send us down our own little uh, mental rabbit holes. But if you can give people uh, an orientation around something objective, they're generally going to get on board with you because that's, that's just how humans work. We work towards like different point A to point B, left foot, right foot. And, and, and people are generally good at that. So someone comes up with an injury. Okay, step one is to get a broken bone. I know you don't think like anything's broken, but sometimes it's information. Uh, sorry, you know, there's information that can be given on the next ray. Even if the, even if the bones are intact, it's the relative spacing between the bones that gives us a lot of information. Sometimes you can see swelling um, that suggests where an injury might have occurred. So you've always got to dive deeper, not to butt in, but like I just want to make sure yeah. that uh, you're doing such an awesome job of giving a lot of points. Like there, like you, at first, yeah, I just want to summarize where we're at. It's so critical to validate to address that kind of what can become emotional contagion. Because if you don't validate, the person doesn't feel heard. And if they don't feel heard, they're not going to calm down anymore. And then if they don't calm down, it doesn't give you room as a practitioner to say, okay, now let's dive more deeply. 
And now you can dive more deeply into these things and you can say, all right, it's never what we see at first. And I think that that's something, no matter the profession people are in, let's use finance, right? Um, and this yeah. is all bridging around what you said. My father was a stockbroker. The minute the market would go down, people would freak out. The minute it went down p- three days, people would freak out. They'd completely ignore Justin that over the hundred plus years of the market, the average rate of return has always been positive because all they know is the emotions of the now. We see that in strength and conditioning, right? We see this in human performance. I hate the term strength and conditioning because what we do is so much broader than that. But like in our field yeah. and performance, people it's great that all this technologies come about, but people get hooked on a number. And this, this is where a lot of my romance with, you know, certain technical elements of what we do, or at least the overzealous nature of how people fetishize it go is because they get so caught on, you should be lifting this percentage of your max. And if you don't hit this weight, oh my God, you're weaker. And you know, it's the same thing in the medical field, right? What I'm hearing you say is it's not just one thing. We've got to look at the spacing between this. We've got to, we've got to assess the relative yeah. ambiguity and interconnectedness of the internal and external environment. Am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Um, that, that, <clears throat> I, I use a phrase with patients often called the tyranny of the now. Ooh, I like um, that. And that, and that the, the, whatever is happening in this very moment, it, it, it wants to overreach. It wants to take over your whole existence. It wants to override your emotional state. Like if you were just having the, um, that's, that's providing an example. Um, I took care of a woman who sprained her ankle badly at her wedding. And it was so bad that she couldn't walk. And the people at the wedding said, you know, just go get an x-ray, make sure it's not broken. If it's just a sprain, <laughs> you know, we'll party will still be going on. So, um, she comes in and gets an x-ray and she's like, oh my God, I just ruined my wedding. And, and uh, thankfully the x-ray was negative. It was a sprain, not a, not a uh, concerning fracture. And uh, basically gave her some crutches, put her in a, like a supportive air cast and said, you know, um, worry about the rest of this tomorrow. You didn't ruin your wedding. The party's still going to be raging on. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, 20 years from now, if you make everyone who's, when you sprained your ankle at your wedding, it's going to be a hilarious story to think about. Um, but, you know, in that moment, the way that she framed it was, I just ruined my wedding. Like, I'm pretty sure that everyone else is going to be having a great time. Yeah, it's a huge uh, jump. That it was the tyranny of the now. Yeah, and, that's perfect. Um, in, in my own training, when I think back to my days uh, uh, rowing um, in, in college and then with the national team afterwards, um, you just lived and died on this razor edge of you're as good as the past workout. And, and it's so hard to get away from that because sometimes our coaches or the people that uh, kind of subtly instilled that attitude into us um, or it's just how we were kind of intuitively responding ourselves to the, the nature of training at that time, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And, uh, and, and it's so important to get onto the trajectory as a, um, instead of the data point. If you can get into what's my progression as opposed to what just happened, the progression is what actually gets you towards your goal. What just happened? That's purely retrospective. Yeah, there's there's information now that you can use to tweak things. But if you can actually get into a process as opposed to um, just checking in with these fixed numbers, like you said, it's so critical. When well, I'm taking care of patients in the, in the sports medicine clinic, it's the same thing. Yeah, and let's jump on that for a minute because, like, th- this was another piece, and I ho- hopefully listeners have gathered this so far. But there's people that probably just started listening today. So um, allow me to give you some context here because it'll help probably give you a, a better frame of what I'm asking. Okay, 
Um, I, I have always been in love with the technical side of what I did. You know, I, I would pour through research. I'd look at, you know, everything I could about anatomy, physiology, periodization, reps and sets, the best way to do this. You know, I'd get translated Soviet text so I could try to dive more deeply into the history of things. But what I inevitably found and what the whole basis of art of coaching and conscious coaching and everything I've done, this podcast is based on, is at certain points you realize that the limitation of any interventions technically you hope to introduce are how people perceive things, right? So I'd write what I thought was the perfect program and a sport coach would want me to all of a sudden throw it away. Um, I would create something that I thought was going to get little Billy, Susie, Sally, Jamie stronger and the mom and dad will all of a sudden pull them out of the program because my workouts weren't making them puke. Um, The whole point is that people complicate these processes, right? The complex emotions. And that's what like everything we do on this show and, and throughout my courses, live events or whatever is predicated on. Let's deal with the people problem first, or as you put it, you know, in another context is part of the people problem, the tyranny of the now. Now, before we get into your process, and I want to hear some of this for sure, let's talk about one thing you said at the intro, just how critical listening is. You know, one thing I had written in my book is that it was interesting. This guy, um, Thomas Day, and I'm probably messing his last name up, you know, Zengadia, he was a professor of anthropology, right? And he said that all mammals want attention, but only human beings need acknowledgement, or in your case, validation, right? What you were saying. Now, before you can even hope to change somebody's behavior, and you, I think you probably know this better than most, right? Like you alluded to, you have to listen. And listening is taken for granted for many reasons, right? Dunning-Kruger, people tend to think it's too simple. They read a book about listening. Now they think they're great at it. But Justin, I would imagine in your environment that you have people that not only are hysterical sometimes, but like you said, emotional. Like what are some steps? And it doesn't have to be five. It doesn't have to be three. Just give us whatever you want. What are some steps that you remind yourself if you were to put them on a flashcard that help you like listen more effectively, What is that thing where you're like, all right, I know I want to tell this person this. I know I want to get them underway, but these are the things I need to do to just get them calmed down other than the validation piece that you, like, what are some listening tips specifically? Great question. Um, I think the first thing that I would suggest at the start is in order to listen to someone else, first take a few seconds to listen to yourself. Check your internal state. So an example is yesterday I was in the emergency department working and it was a busy, busy shift. The hospital was full, the emergency department was full, and we needed to get things done efficiently. So we were walking fast, you get to the room, and what I what I what I hope I do often, I I can always do it more often, is even if I walk to the room quickly, I literally stand outside the room for five seconds and it kind of takes stock and I ask myself, what's happening internally? If I'm feeling anxious because there's a lot to do and little time to get it done, if I walk into the room with that with that emotional state on my face in my posture, the patient's going to perceive that, and that's going to bias our initial interaction. If I walk into the room though, having stripped away that layer of, of postural anxiety because of how much needs to get done, and I walk into the room calmly, slowly, introduce myself, sit down make eye contact bedside manner man it de-escalates everything it brings them out of that that infinity loop of fear and anxiety and says oh i'm about to have an interaction with a human being who's going to potentially hear what's going on and help you 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 meet a person in a moment of hope so whenever we're interacting with a client in whatever capacity in life that that's happening um if we can if we can arrive at that moment and meet that person 
it, it, it actualizes a hope that has been existent for a while, right? Every appointment that we keep, we keep it because we hope something comes out of it. Like when I, um, uh, heard an example here, when I go to the car dealership because my check engine light comes on for the eighth time in two months, I go to the car dealership, which is a pain in the butt, right? No one likes going there. Right. Um, but I go there with the hope that this person who has specialized knowledge can help fix my problem. And, and so I just try to keep, keep in mind that same hope that all people have. So when I, when I check in with myself before I enter the room, strip away whatever layer of emotional uh, baggage or uh, just even just logistical work baggage, cognitive load, um, that would keep the person from realizing that, ah, I am, I am here for you. If they can see that I'm preoccupied, that's going to derail everything. So whether it's a phone call, uh, whether it's a, an in-person encounter, I think text and email doesn't carry the same issue here. But give the person the sense that you're there for them. And if you can, if you can just check in before you enter the room, that's step one. Check in before you enter the room. I already kind of mentioned step two, which is introduce yourself. Right. Don't assume anything that people have already been introduced to who you are. Give them a sense of who you are yourself. That's step two. Step three is sit down. Now, if the person is standing, um, I stand up. If the person is laying down, I don't lay down, but I, I get to the same eye level. Some element of like so isopraxism or, or mimicry there, yeah. right? Like meeting them where they're at. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be attuned to their body language. Now, body language is hostile. Don't mimic hostility. But if Ooh. body language is timid, make yourself a little timid. You don't want to create a, a power dynamic. Like hegemony is your, is your enemy Love that. when you're trying to build an alliance. So um, step one is check in outside the room or check in before you uh, initiate the phone call. Check in before you join the Zoom meeting um, and strip away whatever layer of emotional uh, unnecessary load, cognitive load, um, uh, kind of personal emotional state that you're carrying. Just try, to, just try to strip it away, put it on later on. If, when you can actually deal with it. Uh, step two is uh, introduce yourself. Step three, get on the same level. Try to mimic body language. Now, it's much harder in an audio-only context, but if you can mimic pace of cadence, if you can mimic tone, um, one thing we talk about in medicine specifically, and this is very true, I think, probably in, in the human performance context, is you try to mimic um, syntax and, and level of jargon sophistication, right? You have to use terms that your uh, your counterpart in that conversation and in that interaction is going to understand. Some people are, are going to want to see your level of sophistication. They're going to want to know that you know the big stuff and you can kind of do a deep dive into it with them. But fundamentally, to build understanding, you have to you have to match that level of understanding. Uh, we call it in, in medicine. We refer to it as health literacy. So if somebody knows the names of these anatomic structures, go ahead and use those names. If they don't, you have to introduce it and sometimes when you're working with a kid, you go back to the old mantra, you know, the knee bones connected to the leg bone. Right. Yeah. Get the ankle bone. Make it melodic. You're, you're literally trying to, uh, what, what I think I like, I like about this most. And the fact that you're saying it is I keep telling, and it's tough. Cause I know people don't want to hear it from me. They probably listen to me if I have five Super Bowl rings and this and that, what I, what I've learned is despite the fact that I've had the blessing to work with over 500 professional athletes, special forces, companies, things like that certain people aren't going to listen to what I say just because whatever, right? I, I might be too close of a peer to them. But when you're listening to somebody that works in emergency surgery situations, somebody like yourself, 
and they're hearing you talk about essentially social skills and the importance, you know, I, I think it hits home in a different level. And, and what's always fascinated me about this is the fact that like there is well over 30 years of research that talk about, you know, specifically communication approaches between patients and doctors, right? Like, and, and there's a lot of this in oncology. There's a lot of things mm -hmm. that like, you know, in turn, like review of the literature that just say, hey, you know, when you're trying to talk to people and deliver bad news, good news, whatever, and the way that's shared between providers and patients, that's really tough. And you gave some specific examples and they're examples that we talk about in our apprenticeship. So, and this is funny because we've actually had an increase of medical professionals come into these two-day workshops. So you mentioned verbal and nonverbal, right? So we grade people yeah. on clarity, conciseness, fluency of speech, tonality, tempo. And we look at those things in the context of a role-playing scenario that we put them in. So there's certain role-playing scenarios where we might want a faster tempo. We want, we might want tonality that's a little bit more elevated as opposed to soft and relaxed, right? Like uh, fluency, there's times where it's, it's great not to have many filler words, ahs, ums, ahs, ers. But if somebody doesn't have any disfluency, that can come across, you know, their patients, what the research says, as very robotic, cold, detached, right? They don't seem human. And then the nonverbal part, just to make sure the audience picked up on all the great content you provided, that element of isopraxism or mimicry, but there's so much more than that, right? There's, there's haptics. Is there touch involved, right? Like, are you putting, like, I always know when I have to cue an athlete, I could sit there and say, hey, nice job keeping your back flat. That's very different than me guiding them with a, a hand or a gesture appropriately, whatever, and putting them in that position. Uh, we know that teams, when teams congratulate each other or individuals touch, slap on the shoulder, pat on the hip, whatever, teams that tend to get the most touches on average have higher winning percentages. There's research that suggests that. Then there's also, you know, kinesics, which is your overall, like, how expressive are you? You know, if, if a patient tells you they're in pain or an athlete tells you something's going on, you know, are you reacting? Are you actually showing acknowledgement and validation through your face? And then finally, Justin, and I'm telling you these because I'd, I'd be interested in your take in them. There's proxemics. So like there's spacing, right? Like, am I leaning over the patient? Am I doing this? Am I, how am I, how am I managing the spacing? And then finally, aesthetics, right? We know yeah, we've talked about in the episode in the past, like how you wear, th like what you wear and, and like that says something about you, that communicates things. I mean, patients used to look at surgeons and surgeons used to wear black frock coats with, you know, stiffened with viscera and blood. And that would actually give patients confidence because it was like, oh, this guy's got a busy practice. He's experienced now that could yeah, never right. happen right now. We have a whole level of sterility <laughs> and cleanliness, but like, are these the kinds of things that you're talking about when you talk about listening and communication and just mastering those elements early on? Is that kind of a okay recap? Man, that's a perfect recap. Okay. Um, you're, you're teaching me the words that I didn't even know existed to describe some of these things that I've Well, heard. come to the workshop, um, brother. We'll dive deeper. You'll have a ton to add. <laughs> <laughs> I got a lot of people that I'd love to bring. Um, this, is, uh, this is it. This is the practice. It's how do you occupy physical space with another human being talking about things that aren't physical, talking about emotional states, yeah. um, talking to states, fear of the future, regret of the past. How do you occupy a physical state with another human being who has that baggage? We all do. And how do you use it to identify a path towards a desired goal? And how do you initiate that trajectory? Um, in medicine, it's, it's something we're all going to encounter. Um, and like I said at the very beginning, I think I got into this work because my own experiences with that kind of uncertainty when I was younger really unsettled me. When I had injuries that 
didn't get better. Um, and imaging was reassuring and people were like, yeah, 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 it's fine. It's going to get better. Just do this or that. And I would do this or that and nothing would change. That was really, really frustrating, really anxiety inducing. And I think that's what exposed me this liminal space between what medicine is supposed to do and what medicine can't do. And how do you, how do you coexist with patients? Um, in, in that space, it's, and it's, it's not easy because it's not an, not an easy space to be. Um, and, and that's, that's the work. the work. We can develop technical mastery. We can develop um, understanding and knowledge about the, the huge body of work that's come before us. Uh, you mentioned finding esoteric Russian papers, right? There's, there's knowledge that's hidden in these spaces, and we, we want that knowledge. But um, how do you bring that knowledge into a point of application? Have you created a meaningful relationship with the person that needs you to have a meaningful relationship with them? And then how can you be at times benevolently patriarchal? How can you, how can you kind of tell them what needs to happen, even if they don't want to do that thing? Um, you've got to create the relationship. And all the things you described are the ways that you do it, the ways that you maintain it, and the ways that you further it. And it's hard freaking work. At the end of that day, at the end of that conference, at the end of that uh, workshop, you're going to be exhausted because it's human work. It's really tiring. And then you got to go take care of yourself so you can get ready to do it again. All right. I need to pause for a moment to tell you about something that has been super helpful to me. If you've listened to me on podcasts or anything before, you know that I'm not somebody that sleeps uh, easily, right? Like the, that's probably the one part of my quote unquote routine that I struggle with the most. It, it kind of runs in my family. I've talked about it before on this podcast. We, I just have trouble shutting my brain off. And so when I was looking for something, everything gave me uh, you know, a morning hangover. I couldn't take anything with certain amounts of melatonin. And I, you know, I'm somebody that doesn't want to get into pharmaceutical means. And then our sponsor, Momentus, told us about something they were creating, sleep nighttime recovery, that is is a really tremendous product that is both NSF and informed sport approved, licensed, certified, all that. And it is something that has just the right amount of melatonin, just the right amount of magnesium, everything that I need to naturally kind of drift to sleep, especially when I'm on planes. I don't sleep really well on planes when I'm traveling. Uh, and this has been a game changer for me. It's real simple, guys. Just go to livemomentous.com, check out their sleep nighttime recovery, and be sure to use code BRETT20 to receive a 20% discount. Again, Brett 20 will get you a discount on all things momentous. All right, back to the episode. Yeah, a hundred percent. And within that talking about taking care of yourself, I mean, that's, that's funny just for the audience to get some context. That's actually how Justin and I met when I left uh, Los Angeles, you know, I wasn't really doing anything online. I mainly just coached athletes, spoke, did those kinds of things. And then uh, a mutual friend of ours, Brad Stolberg, um, who you guys have seen him on an earlier episode. If you haven't check his episode out, it's called the passion paradox. Awesome, awesome episode. Um, but Brad had basically seen me coach some NFL guys, wrote an article in outside magazine magazine about my work. We developed a relationship and Brad said, Hey, you know, would you mind kind of training me? So I'm like, well, I've never really done online training. You know, I don't know, man, like I've got a lot going on, but you know, I acquiesced cause I was, you know, going out on my own and we could use some extra income and Brad seemed super dedicated and diligent. So, you know, we could get after it, you know, and then after a few months and what have you, you know, maybe even after a year, Brad had mentioned that he had some folks with him that joined him at the gym and got after it. And, you know, Justin, you've done a pretty good job of downplaying your, your athletic past. Cause you were 
never quite the athlete. Brad, Brad talks about it all the time. I'd love for you to just share a little context there because, <laughs> well, I think it gives the audience a unique perspective of you're somebody that now is a practitioner dealing on the other side of the equation, right? Especially in sports med, like you've been an yeah. athlete at a very high level. You've experienced the inherent competitiveness, the emotion, the, um, you understand strain, right? And now you're helping guide other people through those parts of their journey. But that's how we, that's how we got to know each other. So, you know, pick up there wherever you'd like, Justin, but like, I do think that maybe it's, it's viable for people to understand how your perspective in the past as a, as an athlete and somebody now who's still, I mean, guys don't get it twisted. I write them some gangster ass programs. These guys aren't doing, you know, they're doing a combination of six second eccentrics. Other times they're doing contrast methods. We're doing a lot of different things that I do with, with high level athletes because they've shown the physical and emotional literacy to do these things. But, you know, could you share kind of how your perspective of being, having skin in the game at that level has shaped the way that you maybe interact with athletes who are at that level now and you're in a different situation. Would you mind doing that? Yeah. Happy to. Um, yeah. Brad, Brad is just one of my favorite human beings on the planet. He's one of my best friends now. I'm super, super glad that he broke me into this, um, uh, into, into training with him. And then, uh, as a result being trained by you, um, I, uh, I went through this athletic transition of, um, starting off mostly with endurance sports as a, as a youth athlete, um, getting into rowing, uh, which is kind of obscure, but I think thanks to the rise of CrossFit, a lot of people are familiar with at least the rowing machine. Uh, rowing on the water is a little bit of a different experience. Um, it's a lot more time, a lot more technical, a lot more. Um, it, 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 one of the best descriptions I ever heard was uh, from a 1996 Olympian, a lightweight rower, uh, Jeff, and his last name starts with a P, and I can't remember it. Um, uh, sorry, Jeff, if you hear this. Um, he described uh, an elite rowing race, uh, which is typically 2,000 meters in length, which lasts anywhere between five and a half to six and a half minutes, depending on which kind of boat you are in. Um, he described it as running, uh, running the mile, but you have to sprint the first 100 meters as if you're a 100-meter sprinter, the first 400 meters as if you're, as if you're a 400-meter sprinter, and the first half mile as if you're a, a half-miler. And then the last half mile is just, dear God, hang on. And you have to do so while you're running on a balance beam. Um, good Lord. And, and it, it, human beings are really good at getting good at things. That's what humans do. We get good at doing things better. We can turn anything into a competitive race, right? If you had, I mean, why does boxing and chess, like there's matches where people box and then play chess. That's because just humans like to make things competitive. And we're sure. crazy like that. Um, so humans get competitive at anything. And so eventually you can get good at rowing if you just row enough. You got able to, to, uh, I, was, I was lucky enough to growing up in the Detroit area have a have a really great group of guys and a coach who were really committed. Got into rowing, got into um, got into uh, the Harvard, which was a huge surprise for me because you know growing up in Michigan, I was going to the University of Michigan. I mean, that's just what you do. Um, and then uh, and it really opened my world up. Um, uh, and that was the gift of rowing. It kind of just cracked my life wide open and gave me some amazing opportunities with wonderful friends. Um, but the the, the challenge of rowing for me was that, oh, the formula of work really, really hard and you'll do well, that doesn't hold up perfectly. Because I worked really, really hard. And when I was 17 years old and training four hours a day on six hours of sleep with high school workload, I started to break. And, and uh, imagine that stress isn't cumulative yeah. at all, right? No, not at all. My <laughs> CNS was white. It was white. Um, and it's only in hindsight that I can realize all of this. So 
fast forward a lot going through running college, having a wonderful experience, uh, running with a national team, realizing that elite athletes, that is the hardest state to be in. People talk about it as if it's really, really rewarding because like, oh, you made it to the top. The top of the mountain is where it's coldest, windiest, most lonely, the most hungry, and the farthest from resources. I, I love that. Repeat that. I think people need to hear that. No doubt somebody's, so, you know, people listen to this in their cars or walking the dogs and it can get really easy for them to kind of just fall into a lull. That needs to be fucking repeated. I'm sorry for the F-bomb guys. That caught me off guard. Like, but that is so true. That top of the mountain analogy is, per, repeat that, please. Yeah, yeah, I hope I can repeat it well. Um, so uh, people talk about, you know, your, the goal is to get to the top of the mountain. Like you want to get to elite athletics. And so for me, that goal, that goal was the, the national team and international competition. And uh, people don't realize that the top of the mountain is a place that is it's the coldest, it's the windiest, it's the most lonely, it's the farthest from resources. Um, it can be a really, really hard place to be. Elite athletics is the goal, but with every step of progress, your ability to maintain the workload, to maintain the self-care, um, it just gets amplified to a much harder level. Um, and so I developed just this incredible respect for what elite, elite athletes are actually experiencing. Um, it is hard to sustain elite athletics. The physical workload, the, uh, the central nervous system burden, the social burden from training so much and being fatigued, like it's just hard to be a normal human being. I would really, really, <laughs> I really emphasize to, to my elite athletes, I'm saying like, you've chosen a non-normal human existence. So don't expect it to be normal. You can't want it to be normal if you also expect to perform. And I think that's the big transition that most collegiate athletes have trouble making. I think that's the uh, uh, transition that a lot of high-level collegiate athletes have trouble making when going to elite athletics. Like, how do we how do we get people to realize like when you're doing something that's just extraordinarily hard, you're not going to have a ton of resources there to support you because a lot of people don't understand what it is to do something that's really really hard. Um, that's a that's just a hard place to be. And you got to build your team around you. And so that's what Brad, that's what Brad did. I think bringing us all together in the gym, like we're just a bunch of guys in our thirties who really enjoy training because it's a focused moment in our lives when we can have ownership over something that makes us both feel good, gives us a trajectory towards um, um, uh, getting better at doing something, but also it normalizes a lot of the other things in our life. Um, it helps us really appreciate uh, what a gift it is to be able to do that. Like we, we're, we're, we're lucky enough to have jobs that allow us to have a gym membership, uh, to have some flexibility over our own schedule so we can do that. And so coming full circle with my own training, I went from this period of just crush yourself because that's what makes you good to realizing that the top of the mountain is a pretty lonely place and it's hard to be there um, because you don't have time to have a great job, so you're not making a lot of money. You need to spend that money on, on good food and nutrition and on um, doing soft tissue work. Maybe if I'm traveling to competition, that's just a hard place to be. And then coming full circle now to uh, training in adulthood just for the sake of picking an arbitrary goal and wanting to get better at it, but wanting to do so really, really sustainably. Training for life. Training so that the next four decades of my life, I'm a functional human being. I can do physical tasks like Dan John, who is just a hero of mine. I, I, his 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 writing is is philosophical, but applies to um, human performance. And um, he talks about how he wants to be the guy that his friends call him to help move a sofa, no matter what his age is. 
Right. Yeah, yeah. I remember him saying that's that. That's, that's awesome. I don't want to move sofas for people. Like, I'm happy to be. Yeah, man, come that. on over. I got some you can help with. Cool. <laughs> but I want to be regarded as functional. I want to be an emotionally healthy human being. I want to be capable of uh, accompanying people through hard moments in life. Like, if I have a friend who's going through um, a difficult time at work or a difficult time in relationships, I want to be regarded as not just the person that goes to the gym with that friend. I want to be regarded as the person who just accompanies that friend through hard things in life. Because I know that I'm going to have those moments too, and I want to, I want to have friends that come do that for me. So the whole point of training is to make a better version of you. Occasionally that's, um, occasionally that's done to a dangerous degree. Because the better version of you might be like the, the, the 400 meter sprinter who needs to be so perfectly refined for that one task that it means you become bad at other tasks. That's okay to, as long as you acknowledge it. And you take time where you're going away from that precision focus on one thing to become a better generalist again. And I think that's crucial for, um, for anyone who's interested in performance. Yeah, I think. Remember that you're focused on that path. I, I think that's huge. I mean, just to, I love what you said in terms of, you know, one of the things I said in my book is, you know, at the end of the day, training is just a tool to help people realize what they're truly capable of. It really is. And, it's something that I think why our fields are so related with what you're talking about and, and, and human performance in totality is one thing coaches struggle with, and, and I'll probably get some hate mail for this, but if you were to ask coaches, and we have, we've done a lot of surveys, a lot of interviews, a lot of third-party stuff. We've, looked, we've asked over 6,000 coaches across domains, and a lot of them in strength and conditioning say, hey, the biggest struggle is you know, I can't validate completely how effective I am or what I do. And, you know, sometimes I feel like I'm doing everything to get the athlete better, but they still don't, you know, accomplish everything we'd like. And, you know, it, it's just so messy. It's muddy, right? Like we, it's hard to truly validate. You can read all the research, write all the programs, do all that. And somebody can still not accomplish your goals. And, you know, I've always tried telling our field, well, listen, like, yeah, you can't evaluate these things in totality because they're context dependent, but like you can't evaluate what lies at the heart of what we do. And that's communication skills and your ability to adapt socially and make better decisions. And that's, that's what we teach at the apprenticeship, you know, but the issue is, and what goes in with what you said is most coaches really, I don't think what they realize Justin, that they struggle with is a lot of them just aren't very confident. And a lot of them are seeking validation themselves. You know, of course they want to do it for their athletes, but the, the question they're really asking themselves is, is what I'm doing really helping and I imagine you have to feel an element of that too, even though you know what you do helps. And even though those coaches should know what they do helps because it expands beyond training. Um, but I would imagine, you know, you work with people sometimes that they don't get better the way that you hope they would, you know, they make improvement. Um, but other, you know, surgeons have to deal with the fact, uh, in other situations that they may lose a patient. There's emotional trauma that comes from these things. And people often use training as that therapy. Uh, the one thing they can control, right? Henry Rollins always said the iron doesn't lie. And that's why I just feel like most coaches bark up under the wrong tree. They'll try to get a pro sport job or a big uh, a private facility, or they try to validate what they're doing by saying, here's five you know, deadlifting methods to make you more, whatever. And really what they're seeking is they want validation and they want to know like, what I do, what I do works. And I want to broadcast at the world because I want to feel like I belong and I want to feel confident. And people that get mad hearing that are probably the people it's actually most true with. Um, cause it can be hard in these professions when we're trying to help others. It can be like our confidence can get hit at sometimes, right? Like, have you ever dealt with that? Justin, have you ever felt like no matter what you do, no matter what your past track record is with helping people, do you ever just have days where you're like, 
geez, like, am I even good? You know, am I, like, even if you know you are, do, like, do those thoughts ever go through your mind? Do you ever have these self-defeating, self-deprecating, just kind of things? I, I, of course, training helps you, but can you walk us through that a little bit if you ever experience that, or is that not the case? It, or you're just straight through, like, no, no, I know what I do works, and it's infallible. Oh, man. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> uh, I wish, I wish, uh, so just to, just to describe this audio here, I'm just sitting here nodding my head and probably like eight different things come to mind to say like, yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, don't worry. We'll get um, you on a part two. So you don't have to feel like you got to <laughs> knock them all out. No, I, I and uh, some of them are, are, are funny enough, but I, so, I mean, I love to use, um, in, in, in texting with friends, I love to use GIFs or I, I guess it's GIFs or GIF. I think GIF yeah, is it's the GIFs. one, but no GIFs. one says GIF, GIF. But anyway, um, and some of my favorite are like, people are like, what are you doing? And I just send them like a gym fail. Like just search gym fails and you see people like doing. Ridiculous oh, they're hilarious. Awesome. They're hilarious, right? And those things exist in every kind of work. There would be like stock fails, and it would be like when, like, so here's this ridiculous example. Like, uh, everyone knows the stethoscope is like this this medical device that doctors use to listen to hearts and lungs, sometimes abdomens too. But um, uh, what you do with a stethoscope is kind of weird, right? Certain doctors wear them around their neck. Some doctors have these little like. Uh, uh, little holders and you can wear it on your on your waistband. Some docs put them in a in a coat pocket if you're wearing like the long white coat that that physicians wear. Um, but I tell you, every doctor has a story about their stethoscope like getting caught on something and then like either like pulling their pants down or like pulling their co coat off or like stethoscope <laughs> itself will like explode to pieces because it had so much so much tension on it. It's absurd, right? No one talks about these, but. Um, that's a that's a that's like a physical comedy thing, so like a doc fail. But there's emotional. Uh, there's days when you just emotionally whiff. It's like like a like when a baseball player like wings for the fences and just strikes out. Right. Or it's like that that sandlot type move where someone swings so hard they literally spin themselves in a circle and fall to the ground. Yep. These exist. These exist. Some of them are funny because you're like, wow, I just totally misread that situation. Um, and uh, and. And some of them are not because it's like, whoa, I just did not help that person in the way that they need help. No human being is perfect. Um, I think a lot of people go into medicine because they want to help. And a lot of people succeed in the medical pathway of going through college with good grades and then getting into a medical school and completing the, the challenging curriculum with good enough grades to get into a good residency and then potentially doing a fellowship. And then eventually after like, you know, 25 to 29 grades in school, you get to go kind of start doing the thing that you wanted to do. And your first year as an attending, that's what that highest level of, of training is called. When, when you're done training, you're then an attending physician where you attend to the patient. And that's really your first year doing it. So it's like you're a rookie after 29 years of schooling. And of course you're going to fail. Everyone thinks that, oh, I'm done training. I have to master this perfectly. The best advice that I ever got when I was finishing my medical training was that the best fellowship you will ever do is your first year as an attendant. And, man, that is the time when uh, fake it till you make it. And you have to try, try, try. And it's so important that within the medical community, we talk about this emotional burnout. Um, sometimes people use this phrase moral injury where the, the dissonance between you wanting to help and maybe not helping, that's a painful, that's a painful delta. That's a painful discrepancy. 
Um, and it's really, really important that we acknowledge that it will happen. And the goal is to just have it happen less often over time. Um, and this is why this is why physicians take an oath to say do no harm. Uh, we know that harm will happen unintentionally sometime, no matter what we do. We just have to choose to voluntarily not do it. Um, all human systems have errors. Um, people talk about the airline industry as having done a really, really good job of mitigating those, obviously because it's such a binary outcome. It's either complete success and people watch a TV show as they hurtle through the sky at several hundred miles an hour in a metal tube and arrive at a different destination on the planet hundreds of thousands of miles apart, or they crash it. That's terrifying. In medicine, we don't talk about it in such a binary way because the outcomes are not binary. You either have a great outcome, things are totally uncomplicated. Um, occasionally, someone has an allergy to a medication. Oh, there's a little bit of a rash, or um, maybe it made you feel kind of sleepy. No big deal. Occasionally, somebody goes into a procedure, and um, uh, let's think about an example. Is like, say somebody needs a, uh, a transplant surgery. Uh, a liver transplant. That's probably one of the most meticulously challenging surgeries to perform. People that choose to go into that specialty and practice that medical um, expertise, I have the utmost respect for them because yeah, that's incredible. In they're going to fail more often than they succeed. And you basically have to talk to those people as you uh, partner with them in their care and then prepare them for the possibility of a surgery to say, like, you might come out of this surgery and have a wonderful several decades of life while taking immunotherapy medication to prevent your own body's immune system from attacking this transplanted organ. Um, or you can go into a surgery and you could die. And I hope I never have to be in that situation um, to, to receive that care because once you experience the possibility of making a choice where you could either come out and have tremendous quality of life or you might not come out at all, I can't even imagine how to how to make that decision for myself, and so if if um if I can think about if I can think about that, and then just spend one one iota of emotional energy and imagine how the patient might be feeling similarly, I think it humbles you. Yeah, it I mean, we were, that we were in that not a master, right? Yeah, and it wasn't that long ago. My family and I were in that situation. My stepfather had had surgery on his lung, and uh, part of the mesh had got caught within it, the, the surgeon made a, a mistake. And essentially before they had caught the mistake and they knew that there was still stuff, you know, within him after the surgery, he went into septic shock. He had gone home. I'm, I'm out speaking in Canada at the time at a coaching conference. My mom calls me and she's like, you know, like Dave might die. Like he's going into septic shock. He's at a hospital. And so, you know, I'm literally about to get on stage and speak in front of like 300 some odd coaches and I think within 24 hours, I'd found out my wife was pregnant and that my stepfather is now in the hospital with septic shock. And so yeah. I'm taking calls at three in the morning, you know, trying to pour through research of, you know, what's going on. You know, now all of a sudden they're talking about like, if they don't put him on dialysis that he could die. But of course, dialysis for the most part is irreversible. He's, he's undergoing all these crazy things. And, and I'm sitting here like, do I go home? Like, do I cancel this conference? Like these people have already paid for me to come out, but of course I need to be there for family. You know, I'm trying to make those decisions and then help my mom from afar who is just as, emo you know, she, she worked for the government for over 40 years and managed over 150 people. So she's fairly adept, right? She's, she's an adroit like decision maker, but like when, when you're dealing with that and you're watching all of a sudden somebody who means a great deal to you deal with that, uh, I mean, it was crazy. And there's no way to kind of, I don't care. This is what drives me nuts though, right? This is the core of what I'm trying to say, and I think it fits with what you're saying. 
I, I did an episode on here, Justin, called The Leadership Lie. And I talked about how it's all well and good that we typically hear and read these books and watch TED Talks about how all these leaders have great decision-making processes and they have a transformational approach and everything tends to work out if you have those things. And I'm very frank in that episode. You know, in that episode ruffled some feathers. I think that's bullshit. I think that there's a leadership and then there's a leadership in extreme context. And the research supports this, but leadership in extreme context is not always as clean as it is, you know, well, one, when somebody's writing a self-help book that they're just mass producing so they can get, you know, lucrative, you know, speaking deals or, you know, but two, I think it's just taught people that like, you think you're really good at this, but none of us are as good as we think we are because emotionals, uh, emotions, emotionals, emotions are super messy and you can't always be very pragmatic. You can't always be, oh yeah, just these, you know, we'll do this. Sometimes it's messy. And sometimes as a leader, you know what, there's, there's things that we do that are effective, even if they're not socially desirable, meaning, you know, telling somebody to sometimes just get their shit together, that would get you like thrown in political correct jail now, you know, but there's times where sometimes just being really frank and straight up telling somebody, calm the F down, you know, like, this is what we're doing, taking control of the situation, you know, that's, that's effective. You know, do you ever find yourself, here's the question with that, do you ever find yourself in these extreme contexts, you know, if, if other things aren't working in kind of the traditional bedside manner, and this could be in your work life or personal life, it could be whatever, do you ever find yourself having to revert to a different style of leadership or communication that if the outside world saw it, they might judge you? but it was actually very, very effective in the tyranny of the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I know that's I, loaded, man. I'm sorry. I know that's no, loaded, but no, I want to no, give you context. And I, and I think what I wanted to do is, is I needed to, as I was listening to you, I was trying to, like what internal category uh, did I think you were referencing? And, and I think what, you, what, I, what I was, um, what I want to say is, uh, I think you're discussing uh, the, the need to have uh, fluid leadership. Yeah, adaptive leadership for sure. Yeah, adaptive leadership. You need to be able to, um, you need to be able to stick your neck out authoritatively, even if it's very risky. And in in the emergency department, there's an easy moment for this. It's in it's in the uh, the resuscitation bay. That's what we call the kind of the 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 room in the emergency department where the sickest person gets placed because it's where you can put the most people, mobilize the most resources quickly. So an example here is what we call a trauma activation. Um, if somebody, uh, if somebody who is uh, uh, experiencing uh, what we term a penetrating injury, that's usually a knife wound or a stab wound, um, although it's occasionally someone who like fell from a height and landed on a fence, um, and they had uh, a physical object kind of pierce their body, um, there's all kinds of potential internal damage that you can't see because all you see is the the, the wound, and you don't know where that projectile went. Um, People can arrive in those moments appropriately hysterical. They have, they've literally just been shot. And sometimes um, in that hysteria, what you need to do is kind of come right next to the, uh, what we call the head of the bed, where the patient's head is, look them in the eye, say, what's your name? They tell you their name. You say, you're you, and then you introduce yourself. I'm me. Here's where you are. Here's what's about to happen. You have to let us do our job because we're going to try and save your life. A lot of scary stuff's about to happen. You have to let us do our job. Can you breathe and calm down for me and let us do our job? And in that moment, you're giving them an action to choose to follow. 
okay, I'm going to try and calm down. You're acknowledging their tremendous fear, but you're also being the boss. Like, I need you to let me do my damn job. Um, and you have to be willing to do that. That's not an easy thing to do because if you ask that person to trust you and it doesn't go well, gosh, you feel like you betrayed that trust. It's not yeah. an easy spot to be. No, I have to imagine. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, um, uh, I have to imagine that if you're, if you're a, if you're a financial advisor and you're, this is a strange segue, but I think it's, I think it's true. Someone's placing their trust in you that their future well-being will be secured by your advice. And if someone's future well-being gets compromised, and again, many of these factors are out of that person's control. The market collapses. There's a, there's a, a recession. Um, it, it feels like a violation of trust. You're like, damn, I didn't do a good enough job. Right. Yeah. And, well, that, the the, the reason I want no, you're fine. It's your. I mean, it's your show. I just think like the reason I want to bring that up is just like. And, and you and I have talked about this to a degree offline or on is I try to get people to understand when you talk about fluid leadership or we use adaptive or we use whatever, there's no such thing as a bad component universally to somebody's natural tendencies and personalities. Like I get really tired of today's culture, like making people feel like they've always got to be positive, composed, all like that's not the human condition. That's great to strive for. But there's also a time where that's just not reality and people you lead need to see the human part of you. It's about learning about yourself and then strategically deploying various parts of your personality, both what I talk about in my book is bright and dark sided, depending on the context. You know, but people get Absolutely. so caught up on like, oh, like, you know, the terminology in the literature is bright and dark sided traits. So they hear dark side and they think that's bad, but there's a litany of research. And I talk about this in my presentations and a number of things that talk about how even subclinical elements of traits like Machiavellianism and narcissism and even psychopathy, this has been well-researched in surgeons can actually have beneficial elements, but people hear those terms and they hear narcissist. And they hear Machiavellian and they hear psychopath and they think that we're talking about people who are in totality arrogant, um, you know, just like out of their mind and they don't understand the true definition. Like, you know, narcissism, there's research that shows like subclinical narcissism is just an elevated confidence. And like, would you want to get surgery by somebody who doesn't think they're one of the best and isn't a little bit narcissistic in terms of thinking that this will be relatively, I mean, if I'm getting brain surgery, I want that person that's doing that to not really have a whole lot of doubts about their skill. Um, you know, and when you look at psychopathy, you know, the way they look at that in society now is like psychopathy doesn't mean Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger killing people. It means that you have lower levels of empathy. And I've talked about this ad nauseum, so I'm not going to get, you guys can listen to previous podcasts or we talk about it and bought in a lot. You know, you need to have the ability to kind of move on and not let your emotions override things. Because if you don't, you're going to make terrible decisions. And this is inveterate in, you know, uh, they say, you know, high level financial traders, CEOs, presidents, some of the best presidents in the world or in the history have been ranked on higher traits of psychopathy. This is not the same as a sociopath. A sociopath is somebody who has low, you know, clinically low empathy and also like society, right? Whether they were abused by their mom or whether they had something else happen. Those people like 
like that nomenclature is very different. But my point is, is the literature shows this, but people don't want to read it because we live in this politically correct society where it's like, nope, 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 nope. I just need to be composed all the time. I'm going to use the secret and manifest myself. And that doesn't make people happy, Justin. I think it makes our society more depressed because then everybody's trying to live up to this impossible standard that like, I've got to be Mr. You know, Ted Talk leadership. I just think it's bullshit, man. It's a lot of what my work focuses on now is just like, it's okay to have elements of yourself. Be composed for sure. Work on being better for sure. But like, be a human being if you want to be effective at leading other human beings. I'm sorry for the rant. Like I said, it's your show, but like- No, man, this is great. Preach. Well, I'm like, I just want to know if you feel like you're my bullshit detector because you have to perform, you know, a lot of different procedures on people. And like, I want to hear it. I, like the research is great, but I kind of want to hear it from you. Like at the crux of it, when you're really doing this shit, like, do you have to have a certain element of emotional detachment, you know, to be able to make sure they're not clouding your work? Do you have to have, you know, we've talked about the times you're not confident. Let's talk about the other side of it. Are these things accurate or am I full of shit? No, man, these things are super accurate. Um, you need to, you need to have these, you need to have these attitudes that you can transition into and own. You got to be able to own that space. So the best example in emergency medicine is when someone needs a critical airway. So this is someone who's in what we call respiratory distress. They're either not breathing well enough to get enough air in or out, or for some reason, the air that they're getting in is not exchanging with the um, the oxygen and carbon dioxide in their blood. So they're not ventilating uh, or gas exchanging. These are some just technical words, but this is kind of, this is the level of, of, of mastery that you need to be in pursuit of. And so then there's a critical moment when you choose to give that person medications to put them asleep. They always call this a medically induced coma, which is a really useless term, to be honest. It's a, it's a, it's a sedation and you temporarily uh, put the person into a state where they won't experience discomfort. So that you can then literally open their mouth, maneuver what we call a laryngoscope, which is just a, a, a medical device with a curved flashlight. So we can then visualize their vocal cords and pass a breathing tube through it. Now, every single human being has different anatomy. Sometimes this is being done uh, under duress in extremis because the person has an abnormality in their airway. And it can be really freaking hard, really freaking hard to identify the appropriate place to put a breathing tube. And you end up with a situation where you have to get this done correctly because the person is no longer breathing on their own. And if you don't do it well, the person could die. If you're not willing to say, give me a crack at that, then you're not the person that should be doing that job. You have to be wanting to put yourself into that, into that melee and say, I'm going to come out on top here. Give me the tube. I can put it in the right spot. It's an incredibly stressful thing for trainees to experience. It's really hard to be an attending and teach a trainee how to do that well because you're giving your mastery over to somebody else who's trying to develop their own, and you're trying to control an uncontrollable situation. It's not uncontrollable. You're trying to control a, 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 a hard-to-control situation. But if you don't have the if you don't have the cojones to be willing to sit there and be like, I want to do that, then you're probably not the person that should be trying to do that. You need to have done it enough times yourself. You need to have a, a practice regimen in place where you can drill it and you have your muscle memory in place and you have the ability to uh, manifest enough of a parasympathetic response to a very sympathetic situation. Keep your heart rate below 120 so your fine motor skills don't deteriorate. To control a chaotic room 
can can communicate with uh, closed loop uh, patterns with people that are trying to uh, run the rest of the medical resuscitation or the trauma resuscitation. If you can't do those things, you're not the person that should be doing this. Exactly. And that's the goal of training. You've got to be able to access those states so that when you need them, you're comfortable enough going into it. But if you live in that state all the time, that's a bigger problem for the rest of your life. Right. And I'm so glad you said that. If you live in that space all the time, that's a bigger problem. And that's why I, so I give this presentation called the upside to your dark side. And we talk about the difference between behaviors and traits and guys, I like, this is actually what I'm almost most passionate about right now. So if you want a separate episode on this, let us know at info at art of um, I don't want to go too deep down the rabbit hole on this one. Cause it's, it's Justin's time. But like, if you want more on this, let me know. I'm not going to take everything I talk about in all my courses and put it in there, but we can definitely do a primer episode. Um, cause I'm passionate about it. But what you're talking about here, Justin, is what we talk about, like the dif differentiation, uh, between behaviors and traits. So a, a trait is something that's relatively stable, right? Like if I have a narcissistic trait, that means under most elements or circumstances, I am likely a narcissist, right? And there's clearly times where that is not appropriate. Now, if you deploy certain behaviors, and as you alluded to, that stepping into a role, right? Like that is circumstantial and that is critical of dealing with leadership under extreme context. It's actually the basis of, again, what we do in the apprenticeships. We put people in role-playing scenarios, and then we explore kind of a typology, if you will, that might be not be the right term, but a typology of extreme context of saying, all right, you know, wh what are the extreme contexts? That could be temporal, right? That could be the magnitude of a consequence, uh, the probability of a consequence. Um, that could be, you know, the, the physical or psychosocial proximity, the form of the threat, you know, is it an actual, like somebody's threatening you or is it somebody is being overbearing in a negotiation? It could be anything, right? And then there's the level of those extremities right? Because we, of course, know that sometimes, oh, it's not that big of a deal. I can handle that. Um, other times it's very, very much elevated, right? Like um, uh, given a lot of examples, like you talked about, you know, entering, did you say it was a wind tunnel? Was that what you called it? Or how did you phrase it? I'm sorry. When you were <laughs> the breathing. Oh, um, uh, when you're doing, when you're doing a uh endotracheal intubation. Endo, yeah, endotracheal uh, intubation, very yeah. different than when you're doing another type of procedure. Now, it doesn't mean that one is not, you know, an emergency, because as you alluded to, that's, it's perceptual, right? And it's all relative to the person. But what I'm saying is, we have these intensifiers, we have attenuators, and then we have what is like the leadership response. And that is dimensional, right? That's not, that's not something that it's like spectral where, yep, that's a bad response. That's a good response. It's like, no, no, no. Where are these at on the spectrum? Because who are we to sit here and say, what's the appropriate response all the time? But the point being is there's a difference between traits and behaviors. Traits are fairly static. You're that way all the time, irrespective of context. Behaviors are deployed strategically depending on, right? Like Brad, we're going to poke fun at our friend, Brad, who we talked about. If you go up and you say, Hey, Brad, you're a Boom, right? But you know, you maybe call him a name right before he's getting ready to squat. And guys, Brad is insane. So Brad responds to that. Just have that context right now. Insane in a great way. But like, you're probably the not going to call. Yeah, the best way. You're probably not going to call Brad that like at his wet, you know, at his wedding or like when he had another child, you're not going to go up and be like, way to go, you blank, you know, like, and that's a funny example, but I think everybody gets it. Like there are certain circumstances that call for the deployment of certain behaviors. And that doesn't mean that's who you are in totality. So just kind of, I want to make sure I took that. Does that make sense? Or did yeah. I just jargon everybody right out of the world? The right 
right tool for the right job at the right time. Right, right gear the right for the right hill. For the right circumstance, for the right duration. Yeah. And dude, and it can go wrong in any one of those domains. Right. You chose the wrong behavior, you're in the wrong circumstance, or you didn't let it go when it needed to let go. I'm telling you, selfishly, you've got to get to one of these apprentices. I know I haven't even talked to you about it, but we do that. Like, so we'd put you in a situation, right? And we'd be like, all right, well, like basically we have a, we have a whiteboard of the types of constraints and we'll be like, all right, act this out in this scenario. Three people are with you. They're all given what we call just an archetype card or an AOQ card, art of coaching Q card. And it tells them like what level of distraction they're bringing to the scene. So for example, it could be, you know, you're trying to communicate a key point uh, to three different people and one, you know, periodically is to interject and to kind of be the know-it-all and all these things. Another one is very understanding. They're very interested in what you want to say. They want you to use related terminology because they actually have background of anatomy and physiology. And then a third one is just so rushed and frantic and overwhelmed. And your job is to address the key points in certain amount of time with all the, with all these three people. And it's amazing because like we set people up to fail, but not in a mean way, just saying like, Hey, again, none of us are as good as we think we are. We're putting you in elevated constraints and then we're going to review it on video feedback and we're going to look at how did your body language change, Justin, when this person interjected? What does that mean? What are four strategies for it? So, man, selfishly, I want to get to you to one of these apprenticeships because I think you would light it up. This, this kind of uh, high fidelity training, that's what this is. It's how can you come as close as possible to these critical circumstances without actually being in it? And Brett, it's the same as being, being thoughtful in your training program. It's like if you never approach a maximal lift, one, you'll never know what your maximal effort is. Two, you won't know how to handle that peri failure moment of, oh, I'm not sure this is going to happen. Great term. How do you respond to those moments of uh, feared, imminent, or actual failure. That's what living is. It's how do we go to those moments and come out of them? We're all going to have them. And if you never train for it, whether it's in your work context, your relationship context, your own personal emotional context, or your physical training context, you're never going to come out of them well. Yeah. Or you're never going to actualize your potential. No, spot on. These are, the ways we, these are the ways we have to do it. These are the ways we have to do it. If we don't do it, our life is going to do it to us. So better to have some agency over it. Whatever work you do, own it. Get better at it. Find the things that you can tweak, improve, adjust, and try to do so. But do so in the larger context of improving who you are as a person, realizing that all of our encounters are listening and coaching. We're constantly doing this to each other. Like we coach our partners, our partners coach us because hell, we need it. There's and no better way to wrap that for sure. This is, this is how it works. This is what we all do every day, day in, day out. And the sad thing more alike than we are different. Yeah. I mean, and the sad thing, and we'll wrap up after this because I know you got another obligation you got to run to, but holy shit, we could keep going. The sad thing is, you know, I you wouldn't believe how hard it can be to market these things to coaches because so many coaches already think they're adept at this. And we literally had one guy that was like, Hey, I love you, but like I don't want to go somewhere and play make believe for two days and get evaluated by people that don't know me. And I'm like, dude, you just described life. You know what I mean? Like people like what are you talking about people evaluate you in life every day and like justin it's almost it used to be frustrating but for me it's almost concerning it's almost concerning when somebody says i have no desire to go somewhere with peers and rehearse and refine strategies for some of life's biggest moments or like you said you know para failure type training and uh i i can say this though i'm glad that people like you that are in some of the high, most high stakes situations. Like, don't get it twisted. I like to think what I do as a, a coach is critical. 
but like you hold sometimes people's life in the lines and I'm glad that people like you get it. Um, and that, you know, it's, it's inherently understood. I hope more people in my field get it because we're behind. And I always say that good or, you know, communication in general can't, it might not just cost you your livelihood. It can literally cost somebody else their life. It's drastic. I mean, it's drastic. So listen, man, you have given so much. And I think this is actually naturally organically the longest episode we've had. And the only reason I'm stopping is because I know you got to go, but where can, yeah, I, I, I hate to, but man, no, man, yeah, you're good for a while. Where can people go to learn more about you? I know, obviously you spend most of your time in emergency surgery and things like that. So it's not like yeah. you have an active Twitter handle, but is there some place yeah. you want people to learn more or like be able to connect with you? Um, I'm actually on a pretty intentional kind of social media hiatus, uh, Perfect. Right now because, uh, <laughs> so sorry y'all, but it's, it's real. Um, uh, the, the pressures of social media are to make people seem together, uh, put together. And, and we're not, we're, 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 we're quirky, funky, smelly, disheveled human beings. A lot of the time yep, we're shitheads. that's okay. That's okay. And I want people to own it. So if you, if you think about going on Twitter or social media to try and find me, um, you know, please don't, uh, don't find me. Don't, don't go on social media. You're going to have to uh, go to the apprenticeship to find him. Right, Justin? Yeah, that'll work. That'll work. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's go for a walk. Um, or let's, you know, sit in silence and watch some trees blow in the wind. Yeah, like guys. So I'll put his link. I'll put his LinkedIn bio. Don't count on DMing him or whatever, but I'll put his LinkedIn bio in the show notes. That way you guys can at least see the area that he lives in. And again, he, you heard him say cup of coffee, respect his time. Like all of our guests, Justin, you were a treat. You're an honor man to know and work with. And thanks so much for your trust. And, uh, you know, we'll definitely get you on for a part two if I didn't, uh, scar you too much. Oh no, man, that'd be great. That'd be great. I feel like I was just getting loosened up and, um, yeah. Um, uh, to everybody out there listening, do the work you do do it as well as you can. Perfect. All right. Need people who, who, are, who are alive. Absolutely. All right, All right guys, take care. Listen, one more thing before you go. And I know a lot has been crammed into this episode, but I want to make sure I let you know about my YouTube channel. So I didn't do anything on YouTube for the longest time. Uh, but per your guys' requests and per some folks that just really wanted some more visual content, whether that be uh, just tips, advice, strategies, or even visuals of the type of coaching that I do, live events and workshops, I have created a YouTube channel that showcases even more in-depth information that complements the podcast, the book, and everything we're doing at Art of Coaching. So if you found value in this resource or you're enjoying the content, please make sure you visit my YouTube channel, subscribe, and we're going to continue to try to put out a wide variety of things that whether you're a coach, whether you're a personal trainer, whether you're a CEO, whether you're a manager, all in some way, shape, or form help you better interact with people and figure out how to work on bridging the gaps in your own development. So again, check out the YouTube channel, check out anything else that we do at artofcoaching.com. And thanks again for tuning into the show. I appreciate each and every one of you.